Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Well, again, we're going to be looking at uh, John's Gospel, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, as we look at at this uh, at this truth, the spiritual truth uh, of Jesus turning the water into wine, uh, and that he is the true wine, a fine wine. Wine is not the only thing that gets better with age. And I'm not talking about us as people, because we don't usually get better with age (laughs) in certain fashions. But I was talking actually with someone just the other day uh, about food and just how uh, anything, especially if it's cooked with uh, herbs and spices, uh, think about something like spaghetti sauce or or uh, sloppy joes, vegetable soup, chili, all these things uh, tend to get better uh, as, as they sit. Um, uh, I, I, if, I, when I cook spaghetti sauce, my mom's recipe, I take a, a little bite, you know, a little taste uh, after I get everything mixed. And it's good, uh, and it's good when we eat it, but after it's sat for a couple of days, when those spices and, and again, the tomato, the juices, everything has just sat... It's almost better as leftovers a couple of days later when it's sat. Uh, even when you cook it, the longer you cook it, the longer you let it simmer, it just seems to be better. The vegetable soup, again, the same kind of thing. Those vegetables, when they sit in, those, in that ham hock or something all afternoon, it, it cooks probably every nutrient out of that vegetable, but it still, is very, it still makes it so much more edible. Um, it makes it, it taste so much better. The, our palates, our taste buds are so much uh, more keen. Uh, and they get much more gratified. Well, in our text this morning, Jesus saves the best wine for last, uh, which has several applications if we really reflect on that truth. Most importantly, God spent years allowing creation to somewhat simmer, if you will, in need of a Savior. And, And at last, the glory of Jesus is revealed here at this first miracle or sign of changing water into wine. John's Gospel uses this language of sign. He, all throughout the Gospel, John is talking about signs. Signs that are, are unveiling the truth uh, of, of the Savior, of, of this um, long-awaited Messiah that is coming. Well, he speaks here first of this glory, this sign that is being shown at the, the miracle at the wedding feast at Cana in Galilee. This event, which takes place at a wedding banquet, ushers in a new understanding of covenant, of a promise made between God and his people. In this story, we see established first a new covenant, then we see a new relationship being established, a new perspective on purification, and finally, a new level of faith or belief. This particular miracle signifies that there is a transforming power associated with Jesus. 
He changes the water of Judaism into the wine of Christianity. The water of Christlessness into the wine of a richness and fullness of eternal life in a relationship with Jesus. And then the water of the law into the wine of the gospel. The first point that our text reveals this morning is this establishment of a new covenant. Verses 1 and 2 set the stage by telling us about this wedding. It is no accident that Jesus chooses to reveal His glory at a ceremony that celebrates the covenant of marriage. After all, when you think about it, when a bride and a groom stand up there and they pledge their love for one another, it is a sealing of a covenant, a sealing of a contract, that commitment that is made between the two parties, and then that love that is shared unconditionally between the two it is birthed and it, and it grows into a mature relationship. Well, that's a lot what we are challenged to do with, with Jesus in forming a new covenant with Him. God issues a new covenant with His people. He issued a covenant long ago with Abraham. And the the sign of that covenant was circumcision. Well, no longer will that be the covenant for God's people. Now the covenant is Jesus. You know, in ancient Near East, there was a strong element of respect and regard for weddings. It was one of the most important and joyous occasions in the life of any Jewish family. When two individuals planned to marry, they would first enter into a betrothal period. This was a solemn pledge of the couple, each to one another. And it was so binding that to break that betrothal, you would have to actually go through legal divorce proceedings. I mean, think about that today. If you got, you know, uh, a lot of times our, our men and women uh, but, you know, get down on that, on that knee and they pledge their love and they pull out a ring and they ask for the hand in marriage and they get engaged, right? They have a big engagement party and they may celebrate. Uh, It's becoming even less formal. Sometimes there's not even a ring anymore. Depending on, obviously, the financial levels, people may get... Fall in love and and they decide they'll get a ring later when they when they get some more when when they get some more money or or sometimes they just do things differently, but they enter into a, a an engagement in which they're going to start planning that wedding. Well, imagine if you get in that engagement today and then you decide before you say I do, you know maybe I'm not quite feeling this other person and I don't know that I'm really in love with them and I. I want to run, run for the hills. Maybe you smarten up. And uh, my dad would say that Sarah didn't smarten up, and she went to the altar and said, "I do," and she did. So, but uh, she stuck with me now. But if she wanted to, all the way up until she said, "I did." Now maybe we might look at her funny, and maybe people would in this community might, you know, talk behind their back or whatever about how they canceled the wedding and. Oh, kind of gossip and all of this, but there would be no divorce proceedings. 
But back in ancient times, that betrothal period was that vital. It was that important. It shows us the level of importance and value that they put on the marriage covenant. It was, no, it was not just something people did lightly. It was not something that people just kind of entered into uh, half-heartedly. People you know, gave everything and again sealed this contract with a wedding feast that might last as long as a week. Imagine I, uh, last night we actually left pretty early around like 8 or 8.30. They hadn't even done the toast and everything. But we thought that was kind of going late. But imagine if, they, if we had to stay for a whole week and celebrate that. Uh, we don't do that today. Now, I guess the closest thing we have today is a honeymoon. The couple goes off, and, I, and likely that's where some of that tradition came from, where a couple would go and, again, kind of celebrate the whole week. Vacation would be kind of nice All about now. The entire wedding banquet, along with providing the wine, which was a symbol of great joy, was presented as a gift from the groom to the bride. Now, it was very possible that the family here in this story might have been poor and made the minimum provision of wine. Now, again, in our tradition today, the the bride's family provides all of the support for the, the wedding but back in those times, again, the, the, the bridegroom, the, the groom's family would provide the wine. So in other words, I guess the, uh, the tab was picked up for everything else except for the wine, which was one of the most important things, and that was considered a gift. And so maybe this family was not very wealthy, and so they, they provide just the minimum amount. But regardless, running out of this wine was not only means of disruption of the festivities and meant the party might be over, but that they could even be challenged legally if they did not fulfill that end of the bargain. It was considered required almost legally to provide a feast of a certain standard, almost a reason for annulment, if you will, if the bridegroom's family did not come through. Imagine that. It was possible to take legal action if you ran out of wine. Here Jesus sits at such occasion that parallels the wedding feast of the church and her bridegroom, Jesus himself. And Jesus reveals the importance in Scripture of sealing the covenant between our relationship with him through the gift of our lives. Just as man and woman give themselves to one another in the marriage covenant, Jesus takes the first step, if you will, of the betrothal period, if you will. He gets down on his knees, if you will, and gives us his life, sacrifices his life, goes to the cross, is killed, put in the grave, and is resurrected on the third day. He does all of that as the first step in a, in a relationship that He wants to issue with us, a covenant that He wants to establish with us, a contract He wants to establish with His people. And so we, likewise, are challenged to seal that covenant with giving Him our lives, giving Him our obedience, giving Him our, our relationship and and our willingness to serve Him and to worship Him with everything that we have. 
Which leads us to the second point that this text establishes. That through Jesus, we must form a new relationship. A new covenant is established by Jesus. And that covenant challenges us to form a new relationship. Look back, if you will, at verses 3 through 5. It says again in chapter 2 of John's Gospel, When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. We learn later in verse 11 that Jesus had not performed any miracle up until this point. But his mother's words show to him show that she put a lot of trust in his resourcefulness. Even though he had not created any miracles, he had not healed anyone at this point, according to John's gospel, she still trusted that he could somehow provide something. She didn't know exactly what that would translate to. She could not foresee that he would turn this water into wine, but she trusted him. She had faith in him. But after all, that's her son. Most every parent believes the best of their son or daughter. They believe that they're the next great athlete and in fact, uh, Cheryl and Guy were talking about their grandchild, their grandson, about Jeremy, how he's going to be playing football and this upcoming year and how they'll be there to cheer him on. I'm sure they think, you know, so much of his athletic ability and uh, they think he might be the star on the team or, or we think about our, our children, how they perform and how they, uh, they're so, they have such a lovely voice and, or they have such a, a lovely ability to perform in front of us. I, I think about America's Got Talent and how right now that's really starting to air. I'm not sure if you watch that show, but uh, they're right now they're going through their auditions. And what often happens is if someone comes up and they, they give their audition, they give their performance, and, and most of the times they show the good ones, which is good because it shows that so all the bad ones. They might be a good laugh every now and then, but we've seen it all, it seems like, most of the time. Uh, but every now and then, someone comes up and they give just a horrible performance. I mean, it's just god-awful. I mean, their voice is just terrible. Uh, they try to sing and they're off-key or, or they try to perform. They try to do some type of performance and it just falls flat. It's just not good at all. It's, not on, it's definitely not on the level it needs to be on television, right? But inevitably, there's some family member in the wings, right, cheering them on. There's a spouse or, or there's a, uh, a parent or, or, again, some loved one, a sibling that's rooting them on, that's cheering them on, that makes me kind of realize that family truly is blind and deaf when it comes to talent sometimes. Well, Mary believes some great things about her son, she would inevitably have watched him grow and develop his own relationship with God and his father. But the difference is, is that he truly is something miraculous. Jesus' response and their dialogue reveals a relationship change, if you will, that, that must take place. You know, up until this point, she has probably treated him much like a son. And that will never go away. As any parent knows, you will always love your child and you will always want the best for them. But there comes a point 
in every parent-child relationship where the parent has to let go and realize that their child has grown up and must live their own life and take their own, make their own decisions, take their own steps, live with their own choices. So Jesus' response to her is to address her as woman. It's not quite as cold as it appears maybe in the English, especially in the Greek. In fact, he uses the same reference when performing other miracles. You can look at uh, scriptures like Matthew 15, 28, or Luke 13, 12, or John 20, verse 15. He, he uses it again in John's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 21, when speaking to the woman at the well, just a few chapters later. And finally, he uses it in John chapter 19, verse 26, as he hangs on the cross and tenderly commends her to the beloved disciple. This term was more of respect or of affection. However, as Jesus enters his public ministry, there is a new relationship forming between mother and son. Addressing her as woman redefines their relationship in some sense. You see, in one sense, she would have to lose him as a son in order to gain him as a savior. After all, he is going to become her savior just as he becomes our savior. Imagine that. There comes that time in every mother's life where they have to let go. For Mary, she must learn to realize that Jesus is Savior of the world and what that really means. Our perception of Jesus has to be challenged by forming a genuine relationship with Him. We cannot rely on what others have passed down to us, maybe even what our parents have passed down to us. You know, uh, faith and religion is something we want to pass on to the next generation, but it has to become genuine for them and has to become real for them at some point, at some time in their life. Jesus, is, Jesus follows up his response by asking, What have you to do with me? It serves as a forceful declaration of independence, a sharp instance that she could no longer lay claim as to him as a son. It is not yet time for me to act, he tells her. It stands in stark contrast to John chapter 12, verse 23, when he, he speaks about the hour now coming, approaching. At the threshold of his ministry, he looks forward to its consummation. Jesus will not be guided by human pressures, but rather to relate such problems to his understanding of the will of God, and therefore to deal with these issues at a far deeper level than these who were troubled could ever imagine. He was not simply being indifferent. Rather, he was quick to discover creative ways by which to set such concerns in a redemptive context. Clearly, Mary did not understand Jesus' words as she responds to the servants. She almost ignores what Jesus says and says, how often do we just do the same kind of thing that Mary does? 
Maybe God is speaking a particular word to us, that He's trying to get us to go in a particular direction, and yet we just seem to hear a different message altogether because we put our, our color commentary, if you will, We see through the, this experience that we must form a relationship with Jesus that recognizes Him as the authority, as the one with the plan. After all, even though she seems to almost ignore Him and tell the servants to get ready, she tells the servants to wait for His word. So even though she may still miss the overall message that He intended to get across, She still puts it in His hands, the final action, which models what we must do in every decision. When it comes to a relationship with Christ, He is the Alpha. He is the one who leads and guides us, who instructs us and tells us how to live our lives. As we form this new relationship, we learn more about the next point that this tech establishes and that we have a new perspective on purification with Jesus Christ. Look back, if you will, at verse 6. It says, Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washings, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. These water pots, what, water pots what, he mean, what they mean by this is that they would have been used to wash the hands. In other words, this would have been full of dirty water. It's not something anybody would even think about drinking. And Jesus tells them to then take these water, jar, water pots and fill them up, verse 7 says, to the brim as to, to have no question that anything could be added. In other words, he's not going to perform some magic trick. He wants to make sure that everybody takes any question away that he is doing anything tricky. Then in verse 8, he tells them to draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet, who apparently is one of the guests charged with the duty of being the chairman who presides over the gathering. The Greek verb used here, meaning to draw out, and leo, is most associated with drawing water from a well. This miracle, first and foremost, points that Christ abundantly supplies all the needs of His people, much like a well provides drinking water for, for us. It's an everlasting well. And not only did Jesus rescue the bridegroom from what might have been a crippling liability, but He provided that they began their married life with an unexpected asset of abundance. But more than that, the Master, not knowing the origin, knew the quality of this wine and the timing. People universally, even the Scripture points out, would put out the better wine first because we know if, if we know much, if you know much about uh, wine or alcohol, it'll numb the taste buds. And so after drinking for a certain amount of time, those taste buds become numb and, and so you don't taste quite as sharp. And so that's why people would put out that cheap wine at the end because people wouldn't know what they're tasting. The bridegroom has kept the good wine until the end. At least that's what it appears. Which leads us to another point. 
that the purification that Jesus offers is completely for us. Jesus is not interested in taking the credit. After all, it says that the bridegroom didn't even know where it came from. So Jesus is not, in, Jesus is not doing any of this for Him. God's not doing any of this for His own purpose, but yet for us. That's how much He loves us. The purification that, it, that is ultimately uh, unveiled for us is to see that He loves us enough to send His Son in such a self-sacrificial manner. Well, these stone jars represented also the Jewish ceremonial system. That there were six of them might have further suggested the incompleteness of the old order. Remember, these would have used for ceremonial washing. Jesus did not nor ignore his heritage, but rather he fulfilled it. From this well, or the seventh complete source... He had the servants draw out his own distinctive contribution to the feast. It was not stagnant, dirty water from stone jars, but the well water drawn from an abundant, everlasting supply of of fine wine. Jesus himself, as that complete source, is that which provides purification that is everlasting. Jesus is the best saved for last. This new perspective invokes a celebration, and most importantly, and finally this morning, a new level of faith or belief. Look, if you will, again at verse 11. It says this, The first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana and Galilee, he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Because of this miracle or sign, new life was brought to the disciples in the joy of belief. Their response was not to simply enjoy the gift, but to believe and delight in the giver. Only his disciples saw his glory and The scripture says that they put their faith in him. This miracle account is not concerned with the methods used to changing the water into wine, but only with the effect that the change has on the faith of the disciples. You see, up until this point, the disciples haven't seen a whole lot. They've been following very blindly. But now their, their faith is coming to be rewarded in the sense that they are starting to witness His glory. Several years ago, I went with some folks to a haunted house. We took some youth over to a haunted house. And for some reason, they felt like I could protect them. They kind of huddled around behind me and, and had me go in front. Made me kind of think that they thought that I could protect them. I think they just wanted me to be first if something happened. And I learned two things about this experience. Very shortly into this, we kind of got into an open area and this guy with a chainsaw came out and cranked it up and everybody just scattered. And I learned two things. First, when it comes to survival, it's every man for himself. You know, 
our woman, every man and woman, woman doing the same thing. They were pushing men out of the way, boys and girls, pushing everybody out of the way, trying to get away. But second, as much as I might have fooled myself that those individuals had some kind of confidence in me, their response revealed that, that they would follow me until it got a little too scary or a little too dangerous. And then they ran for the hills. Sure, the disciples had already begun to follow Jesus, but now because they have grown in faith, because they have witnessed His glory, because they have witnessed this new covenant, that they have witnessed this new relationship forming, that they have witnessed this new purification, they would have a, a new and grounded faith, a faith that would last even when it got scary. And while we know that, that just the moments after uh, Jesus' uh, cruci- arrest and his crucifixion, those disciples did seem to scatter, we know the rest of the story. We know because of what they remembered, because of the faith that had been rewarded throughout all this time of seeing what Jesus did and seeing all the things that he said come to, uh, come to be true and come to be real, their faith became something that grounded and rooted the very beginnings of our church. Those disciples then became the foundation of our church, the foundation of a new faith, a newfound faith, a new belief. In life, we can experience many events that send us running for protection, running for answers, but by the glory of Christ revealed in this new covenant, in a new relationship, in a new perspective of belief, of purification, that Jesus is the finest wine to drink in, we can rest assured that He will sustain us, He will see us through, and He will reward our faith. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we realize that often in this life we thirst for answers, we thirst for, we thirst for supplies, we thirst for literally something to drink. We thirst for the needs that we have. We thirst for all kinds of things. We thirst for answers to the mysteries of questions that we've asked for years. We see from your word this this morning that, that you provide in a relationship with Jesus Christ often the, the quenching of that thirst. Lord, that when we have trust and faith in Him and the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ, we can rest assured that our answers will be provided one day. And that, Lord, that simply having that faith might be enough to get us through. May we have the confidence, as the disciples did, That Jesus Christ will be all that we need. That he will be the only drink that we need. May we seek to quench our thirst in our relationship with Jesus Christ. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.